All right. Well, you're gonna. I mean, you're you're in charge. Yeah. All you're right. Gonna, you're gonna have to trim it down somehow. I'll just I'll just make sure the levels are good. Yeah, I have faith in you. I have faith. This will be the greatest recorded episode of Dopey, considering we record it like shit, and you're a professional. What do you, I mean? What do you mean? You use good mics, right? Well, we use decent mics, but when we started the show, yeah. we would just talk into the MacBook Pro with no mics. Right, and people like that. Uh, well, we didn't think the show was going to be anything, so we didn't want to invest anything into it and waste money if we weren't going to actually do it. Right. That was the thinking. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the comedian Modi? Yep. Well, he lived across the street from me, like by chance. Yeah. And he came over to one of our early episodes, and he had never done drugs. He was the worst guest we ever had. Right. But he like enjoyed making fun of the fact that we didn't have microphones, and yeah. it was in my living room. Like he was this big shot, fucking right. Modi. Yeah. Um. Regardless, I have my own feud with Modi in my head. That's, Still? That's the, in my head, sure. But it's not, I don't think Modi probably remembers. Yeah. Um, I have a bunch of beefs like that that don't really exist. They're just kind Only of... in your head. Yeah. I find that most of the beefs I've had uh, generally that have gone on for years were, uh, you know, um, one-sided. How is... Okay, hold on. Let me just start over. Uh, hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I am Dave... Uh, it's a pretty magical, mystical moment for me, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I told the story on last week's Dopey, where I corn and you told the story on WTF. Lucky you, lucky me. <laughs> and I ran into fucking Mark Marin on Ludlow Street, as he said. I cornered him on the corner, and then I invited him for breakfast. And uh, he in- he said he'd come on Dopey, and it fucking blew me away, and here he is. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what happened was, like, I was feeling nostalgic, and, uh, you know, there's something about Katz's that has meaning to me. There's something about this neighborhood that has meaning to me, both comedically and historically on some level, as a Jew, as a guy that was, you, you know, that, uh, you, you know, I just come from that. I, I worked in a deli when I was in college, and, and Katz, whatever. So you come running out, and you work there. And you have this podcast, but I kind of knew about it because I've been I've been in some sort of Twitter loop with people that I put you into. Oh, you put me into that? I right. think so. Yeah. I mean, because so, I tag you all the time. Well, yeah. So, so I kind of knew that it was something. I didn't know what it was or who you were or anything. I didn't know Katz's had anything to do with it. It doesn't. So, in fact, I used to bleep the word Katz's on Dopey. Well, whatever the case, like the 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 synchronicity of it, like you know, because you know of my affection for uh, Jews. Jews, uh, corned beef, pastrami, deli tradition, the Lower East Side, uh, you know, addiction issues. When he told me you would get me breakfast, I was still on the fence. And then I think after breakfast, I, sa- I said I might do it, but then you kept annoying me with your, uh, with, I, you know, with the, you know, the junkie hustle. So, like, so that was good. You're persistent. You have this horrible mixture of, of just being Jew pushy and junkie pushy. Right. And, uh, yeah. It's a is, rare mixture, right? Well, it's, it's, it comes in, in Jewish junkies primarily. And there's, it's not that rare. That's but funny. The, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but, but the 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 double whammy of the the Jew hustle and the junkie hustle. I, I, uh, it, you know, I, I. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's a, it's time. Maybe it's a it's a mitzvah that I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna help this guy out. And uh, and then, but then he started tweeting a lot, and I was sort of like, no, oh, fuck, this is really getting annoying because now if I say I can't do it or I bail out on him, then I'm the asshole. But that's the real junkie hustle, right there. I know what it was. No, but, but I wasn't going to call you out on it. But you kind of did, and I and I also like <laughs> I was I was in Stony Brook yesterday with yeah. my family. We went right. to this beautiful park called Avalon. Like the leaves are changing, and oh, yeah. you walk up this hike, and it's very beautiful. 
And to me, like, I'm so crazy with getting guests on the show because it's like you said, people call you. Can I come on your show, please? Yeah. Could you please let me to come on? The, Roger Daltrey, can can I please no, come know, on no. your show to That's talk about my works. book? That's not how that works. You know no, what I mean. No, he it certainly didn't. Those kind of guests don't beg me. But there have been people, very few, though, uh, actually, who will you know, personally say, I'm coming on. I want to come on. I want to come on. I want to come on. You know, a lot of times I don't deal with it. I don't, you know, I don't do the booking. But there have been a couple... Like Dean Delray, who kind of was pushy for, you know, over a year or two. But then it turns out he had a great story. And, you know, eventually I softened. So if if you are the right kind of person, I will buckle. You know, I probably am that kind of person because my story is just immense and beautiful. But I never thought, <laughs> yeah. I never thought that you could possibly have me on WTF. Yeah. And I didn't think, I thought less of a chance of you coming on Dopey. In probably, fact, right. I told you on the corner of yeah. Houston and Ludlow, I mean, I wanted to thank you for rejecting me. Yeah. Like, I wrote your, your, your whoever it is, like, ten times, telling detailed issues, trying to get that trifecta of junkieism, Judaism. To get me on your show side, or to get on my show. To get you on. I never even considered that yeah. I have the gall to be on WTF. Right. Are you kidding me? I don't know. Who am I? Jake Fogelnest? I'm nobody. Yeah, that was, and he, he barely made it in under the wire. Jake came on, I had to beg Jake to come on my show. I had to beg Jake to yeah, come on? That's that's where we are here, Mark. Jake's all right. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. I've known him since he was a kid. Me too. I was a producer uh, for this shitty show, on, and I was on heroin, and he came in, like, in this moment of sober, and, and they were like, he's going to work on your show, and I knew him from that whole Squirt TV thing, mm. and I was like, I was like... I don't want him on my show. He's going to steal my show. Keep him away steal from me. The show? Well, I was a very insecure heroin addict back in the day, huh? Yeah, I'm not s- anymore. No, no. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> under the things have changed. Yeah, it's in the past. Um, but I've in confidence over here. I think the mitzvah of a helping a fellow Jew, the service of helping a fellow addict, and the nostalgia of the Lower East Side plus a burgeoning podcast plus I said I would give you pounds of meat. I told you on the corner. Brought me a fucking salami. And I'm, you know, I told you I had high cholesterol. That's why I didn't. You know, I only took a, a few bites of meat the other day. You didn't mention the cholesterol. I didn't? It was implied. Yeah. You know, and I, and I as a fan of you, I know you're a, a thing with weight. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. Like, gonna, I mean, I had a lox eggs and onions and cats's. I, I mean, I should have got corned beef and eggs or pastrami and eggs. But then you brought over the little sample plate of the meat. And it was early enough in the day that everything was good. Oh, yeah, but I had them cut it very special. Oh, thank you. Not the, to mention. Like a little uh, bite plate. The perfect yeah. taste. Yeah. Um, and he, the guy is a great cutter. Um, but the lox egg and onion omelet, you yeah. know, I don't like to talk about my work too much on the show except mm-hmm. for where I torment customers. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing dish. It's if like you it's do a the meal. onions, brown them enough. And they did, right? Yeah, they did. They, they took don't. It. That's always the big disappointment about lox eggs and onions is if they either they misunderstand you when you say well done onions and they cook everything well done. Or the onions are just, you know, just barely cooked. You know, right. They, you need I them like soft. A, well, I like them almost burnt. Caramelized. I if, yeah. I don't care if they're brown. Do you know what caramelized means? Yeah, the sugars come out. See, I never understood it. All right. Really? No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I work in restaurants. It's what? Sad. You work in a deli. That is, you, you, you talked about it this, uh, at the new episode with Rita yeah. Rudner, and you talk about Jewish cuisine. I was yeah. like, my boss is going to love me. Oh, yeah. This is a good thing. Well, I mean, it's very specific. It, it is, and it's, it, it, there's no way to make it better than it is. There's been try, you know, like I've got a Jewish cookbook at home. There's a million of them. Yeah, but this is one like that was a, a woman who put together, you know, family recipes, got other people's family recipes, got some deli recipes. Like they've got the recipe for Wolf's Kasha Varnishkas. 
But, you know, like any way you slice it, on some way, and that's not a meat joke. It is, though, but continue. But, like, making your own brisket at home is tricky. To, it's tricky to make it like you would do it at, at Katz's, right? And also, like, kasha varnish is, if you want to do it right, you're gonna, are you really going to use chicken fat? You know, are you really going to? I've done that before because there was a time where I was learning how to cook, and I would do that. I would go find fucking chicken fat. But Schmaltz. No, yeah. You go but, to Sammy's? No, I never went to Sammy's, actually, and the whole time I was here. I never I, Because I don't know what happened. The overriding thing about Sammy's that I always heard was that it was dirty. So I, I, I just never went. I've never been either. I lived it's there my whole there? life. It's still there. They put schmaltz on the table. Yeah, I know. I heard that. If you want, and I know you don't, you and I, to Sammy's, on me. Maybe. Okay. You already got me breakfast. You brought me a hoodie. You brought me a huge salami that's going to kill me. So uh, you, you've, done, you, you've, you've, sh- you've done the thing. I've done my share. You've, you've done the manipulation. Dude, now, you- it's paying off, though. And, and, I am, <laughs> and I'm infinitely grateful. You know, like, to be honest, when you, and we're going to get to the, because the, the dopey fans, like, the dopey fans are a beautiful bunch. But what I was going to tell you, and we can talk about the dopey fans, when you, is that the thing that makes Delhi good and the only reason that they survive uh, is turnover. So, like, because everyone, you know, these towns where you're like, we got a Jewish deli, you don't, you can't. Well, you can't buy, you know, pre-corned beef that comes in the sealed package and then serve it at a deli. The reason why Katz's or the deli I used to work in, the only the only thing that makes it good is if people eat there constantly. Like, you know, you got to go through a couple of corned beefs a day. You, you can't be, have stuff sitting around. Not even for a day, really. No. Right? But they don't exist anymore because it's that magical equation of you need turnover yeah. and you need to cook in volume. Yeah, but the deli killed all those people. It, right, it literally... Well, that's, that's an interesting fact. <laughs> it's true. You were like, talking about that. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the place, it's like, how many of these, how many of the old people still come in? They're not... That generation is gone, so your boss is trying to make it appealing to a younger generation, but still, we know better. Like, though, like when I worked at Gordon's, you know, these guys would come from the hospital. They, they'd had, you know, bandage where they took blood. And, you know, I shouldn't. They open with I shouldn't, and they've got the bandage on their arm where they took blood. Well, the classic is I want a corned beef extra fatty. Yeah. I want fries. I want a chopped liver appetizer. Yeah. I want kishka, and I want a diet cream soda. Yeah, yeah, right. That's the conundrum. Right. The diet right. cream is going to sure. save them. Yeah. You yeah. know, Which, that's the classic. Uh, yeah, but order. the tongue thing, like we talked about tongue, and I talked. I think I told that story on today's show, didn't I, uh, with the, about my grandfather driving in? No, and I mean not in the beginning. I I, I went from I didn't, didn't put that in. No, tell it now. Uh, uh, I well, you know you I told can't. me you told me when we were sitting there. That oh, that grandfather, my grandfather yeah drove yeah. in from I guess it was Jersey City actually. I thought it was Bayonne, but apparently the dates that he was in Bayonne didn't quite match up. So they lived in Jersey City, and it was late at night. It felt like late at night. It was dark. I must have been. It was probably under ten years old, and he just needed to drive into Katz's from Jersey City at night to get tongue and, and, and put it in my head. And then I remember tasting it. It's a very specific sort of uh, fattiness tongue. But then it, later, again, there's a difference you learn in the deli that, you know, there's center cut tongue and then there's tongue tip, which is lean and useless. But when I... When so you really know your deli stuff. I worked at a real deli. So can it. I ask you some deli questions and see how you do? Or should we not lose it? Okay. Do you know what a corned beef special is? No. Yeah, it's corned beef with coleslaw and Russian dressing. Oh, oh, Philadelphia. Well, that's the thing is that Boston had its own thing. Like, and I knew nothing of it, and I knew a bit about New York. But in Boston, like when I was working there, when there was still that older Jewish community at Gordon, there was four types of of rye bread. There was light rye, dark rye. That's high quality right there. Light rye, dark rye, sisal rye, Ah. and pumpernickel. What is sisal rye? 
It's seeded rye. So the light rye and the dark rye, the dark rye wasn't pumpernickel. It was just a little darker than the light rye. And sisal rye was seeded. And, uh, and then the pumpernickel was black bread. It was pumpernickel. Sure. And then people would order the heel of the bread. You know what that is? Of course I know what that is. Yeah, I didn't know that when I first ordered it. I don't it. know anything. This woman comes in yesterday and she says, I, I want a, a sandwich of first cut corned beef. Uh-huh. And, I, and they say that sometimes. Or I yeah. want corned beef wet. Yeah. And I said, well, what's first cut corned beef to you? Yeah. And she said, lean. Oh, right. And I said, well, that's not what it is to me, but it probably is because there are things I just don't know. Well, that's the weird thing about once you learn about the brisket, the double brisket, where is the lean corned beef? Is that the, is that the yes. brisket's got two pieces? Like the, you know, the lean is the, the part that hangs off that is not connected to the other part. So right. The, so the fatty brisket is from the, from the, you, you know, from the, the, the part where there's a, a layer of fat in between the two sides of meat. And then there's this hanging off piece that's not connected to another piece, and that's the lean. That's the lean. And, yeah. and, and like as an addict who has worked in a deli for so long, there's a lot of things that I should know that I don't know. But since Dopey is not the podcast about corned beef, pastrami, and tongue. It's about heroin and drugs. It's about drugs, addiction, and yeah. dumb shit. And yeah. deli stuff could be dumb shit, you know? Sure. Um, for me, it certainly is, but it yeah. does pay for my family. Yeah. But So when you come back to New York, how long are you here for? I've been here for like a couple of weeks this time. It's Why a long so long? Trip. Because I came out to do a scene in the Joker movie, and that was like for a week. And, and like, they actually had me for like 12 days. We didn't do all of the 12 days. And then I, I moved down here. And I, I Who just, do you play? I play a guy. It's not, it's not a huge part. It's just a scene. I can't really divulge it without divulging some of the story, and I don't think I'm allowed to do that. Is it based but on I, that book, A Killing Joke? Did no, you, not really. Did you a read little that? bit. I did. It's good. I mean, I think there might be elements of that in, but, but I play. Um, I did do a scene, a short scene with De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix. Wow. And I'm around, like, you know, it's a short scene, but then I'm, I'm sort of in the, 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 the last scene of the movie, kind of. But um, but yeah, so I was there for that, and then they had they were putting me up in Midtown. And then I came down here on my own dime to just hang out because I got a big show at the Beacon this Saturday, and uh, and I got to go to Boston today to do a, a scene in, a, in another movie, a little scene. Can we say the name of it? Or you don't want to say Mark Wahlberg movie? It's called Wonderland at this point. Why is it called Wonderland? There's so many movies called Wonderland. I don't know. Already. It's because it's the name of a of a casino. Did you ever see the movie Wonderland about? Move the mic up to your phone. Wonderland with the, uh, with the the murder, the John Holmes. Yeah, murder. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's a good drug movie. Good dark drug movie. Yeah, it's a it's it's a very dark drug movie. You, that you you know you don't want to find yourself at that house. And but the thing is, when you live in Los Angeles and you're doing drugs, you're going to find yourself. That's the thing that scared me the most. As I you know when I began to um, get really lost on drugs back in like so I'm 19 years and change sober, but. Looking back on So when's it, the anniversary? August 9th. Is there some, I'm August 13th. Is there some big uh, 20th anniversary you're going to do? No, I, that's not day at a time thinking. I'm just wondering. No, dude. I, 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 do, I, I do enjoy getting a coin from someone. There was a few years where the coin didn't come, and then there was, you know, like no one gave me one, and you get to a certain time, what are you going to do with the coin? You don't really carry it around, but I like getting it. I like holding the weight You feel of it. good. Yeah. Do yeah. they pass it around in L.A.? To give the, uh, the juju on the coin, some meetings, but I haven't seen that in a while. Uh, but they do. I've, I've seen. I've been to meetings. I've been to meetings in all different places, and I've had regular meetings. But most of the regular meetings in LA, they don't. They don't really do that. But and also, they don't give the metal coins, 
like, you know, most of the meetings that I go to, they give the smaller coins and somebody like your sponsor or a friend or somebody. Gets they have you a metal one. But I think if you have a, a strong home group with a, with a nice budget, you know, they, they you can have, get a good coin. You get a good coin. But I don't really go to regular home group meetings as much as I used to. But the what I was going to say was that the like I was a guy that got into drugs because my heroes were always drug addicts. So, you know, I didn't know it would get to where it got. But, you know, there was always this idea in my mind that there was a line that I wouldn't cross, right? Like, you know, like if I ever get to that guy, if I ever become that, I'm going to pull out. Right. But obviously that when you become that, there's no pulling out, right? You think so, that there might be when you're not in it. Is right. the thing. You well, have you're an just idea. sort of like if I ever end up doing dope or if I ever end up getting, you know, I'm gonna, that's when I'm going to stop. If I end up, my, my line was if I ever start to lose my mind, then, then I got I to gotta, I gotta stop. Like you're going to know that. But the point about people is that what I started to realize is just by being involved with drugs, outside of the actual doing of drugs, is that your chances of dying in a million different ways is increased because of the fucking situations you're going to find yourself in to service your addiction. Like, you know, I used to do a bit about that. You know, you just, I can't remember the bit, but you're in a, you're in a hotel room with like, you know, you know, like pirates and weirdos <laughs> yeah. that you don't know. And, 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 you know, you're there because the pirate brought the drugs, you know, the parrot may be annoying, but you know, you put up with it. Right. Exactly. So it's just that thing, you know, you're, you're, you're the possibility of you. And also, you, you know, one thing I've noticed about junkies and about drug addicts is that if you're hanging out with a bunch of people and somebody dies, they're all going to leave. Right. Exactly. Because That's, they don't want to get busted. Because I heard, I mean, um, who are your heroes that were addicts that you were like, I want to be like them? Because I had the same thing. I, and yeah. I had my list of heroes who I wanted to be like. And my list was like Keith Richards. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Garcia. Right. Fucking uh, Lenny Bruce. Yeah, just drug yeah. culture in general. And you were, you were into that too. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they were always the Burroughs, the Writers, uh, yeah, the Beats, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Lenny, yeah. you know, um, and, and, you know, Keith and, you know, certainly Jerry, Hunter S. Thompson, I think. You know, there were just people that had the mentality, you know, coming out. I'm 55, so I sort of missed the 70s, but that was sort of culturally, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s was still the, the residue that you, you looked up to. I mean, I grew up, I went to high school, I graduated in 81, so, you know, punk rock didn't even really filter in, you know, we got, it seemed like, you know, there was disco when I was a sophomore and then all of a sudden new wave came in and I didn't sort of really know. So drug culture, the idea of it was sort of special. Like, you know, I was not, I was unique amongst the people. Did you share it with anybody when you were a kid? Not the drugs, but the drug culture. Like, did you have friends? It was around. It was weed. There was a place in Albuquerque called the General Store. They had massive head shops, which I see are back. You know, they went away for a while, but now they seem to be back. But there was, you know, just all that psychedelia, bongs, you, you know, like um, rolling papers. It was everywhere. The Zigzag Man t-shirts. It, it was this, that was what the 70s looked like in the, you know, early 80s. It was, it was, it was fashionable in right. a way. It was like real, it was like dazed and confused. They did a good job. That's that was my time. Yeah, I a, mean that. How old are you? I'm t- uh, 44. Yeah, I mean that was literally when I went to high school. It was that era, dazed and confused. That's it was an amazing right. era, and that movie was really well done. I thought. yeah. When I was in high school, you know, there was Black Beauties around, Yellow Jackets, White Cross. There was cocaine around. Um, you know, I I first did coke because I worked at a bagel place. I worked at a place called the Posh Bagel. 
which was a facsimile Jewish deli in Albuquerque, New Mexico, across from the university. Uh, it wasn't a real deli because there wasn't a turnover. We didn't, we didn't make the meat in house, but it was sort of a, a New York menu. And it was a bagel place in Albuquerque. It was really the first one. And the guy who owned it, Eddie, was this uh, guy from Brooklyn, you know, a, you know, a very hyperactive Jewish guy, smoked right. cigarettes. And he ran the place, young guy, you know, kind of a player. Uh, and, you know, and, and he, he, it got to the point where, you know, he had a drug issue. There were drugs around. So the first time I got introduced to, you know, like Quaaludes or cocaine or whatever, or because I was working with university kids, I was, a, he made me a manager at 15. You could drive at 15. So I was uh-huh. managing this bagel place at 15 across from the college. So I was meeting all these, you know, college kids and, you know, getting hip to, you know, what was going on there. But I was always afraid of drugs. And it was weird because my parents didn't instill that. You know, they, 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 they were the kind of parents that like, if you're going to do it, tell us about it. You know, uh, you know, if you're going to, you know, don't, you know, the, you know, call us if there's a problem. They were, they were not permissive, but they didn't, they weren't, don't do that. Right. So I felt terribly guilty. Uh, and that's it. why you were. Why were you afraid of it, though? I think there's a, a loss of control or not knowing, and you know, I was always, I was a pretty sensitive kid, and always seems like the guys that were involved with that were a little harder than me, willing to tell. I just wanted to be liked, you know. I didn't want to be, but but what ended up happening, how it started, really, I think when I, I look back on it, was that I had a bunch of friends. They were just drinkers, you know. We didn't even smoke that much weed. But, how old know, are you talking about? We were probably 14 or 15, you okay. know. I mean, you know, we drank the the, the, the Manischewitz at Bar Mitzvahs and stuff. People were getting fucked up at Shoal, you know, on those days when you could. Uh-huh. But, um, you, you know, you hear that as the beginning of a story for a lot of Jewish dope fiends and, and, and they, addicts. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I don't know that that's when it really started because my... My trip with booze was, you know, I was hanging out with these guys. I wanted to be friends with them. We all had our driver's licenses at 15. You know, we were all drinking, but I really couldn't deal with beer. It was too filling. I didn't love it. You know, and I just didn't like beer. So I, because of Keith Richards, I would always buy like a half pint of uh, Jack Daniels, you know, black label. Or back then they had this sour mash label as a green label. Right. And I would just chug that shit. So, you know, and I would chase it. And I didn't like it. But I never could handle it. So I was always the guy, you know, out with the guys who threw up. So, like, I became this liability. Like, I was always throwing up right. when I drank because I was drinking that shit. You know, I wasn't just drinking You beer. weren't having a beer. Right. You were or, fucking or pounding a, Jack Daniels. Yeah, a beer or six beers, you know, whatever the, the... And we used to sit outside liquor stores to get guys to buy it for us. I look back and I'm like, who the fuck were those guys? Like, if a kid came up to me who was about to get into a car... And said, you know, can you buy us a six of Heinies? Could you do whatever? We used to sit out there. Could you get us a pint of Southern and a six pack of this? And eventually someone would buy it and we'd get back in the car and we'd drive around. Well, they, they, they felt cool to be able to do that for you. It was yeah, a different time. I guess so. It was a different time. Getting and us started. I believe if you're, and this is me judge, judging the Midwest, but I yeah. bet you right now in the Midwest, you can find some dude who gets out of a pickup truck and yeah. some kid says, buy me a pint of Southern Comfort. And the guy's happy to help the kid out. No, I, I, I don't doubt that they're around. I just wouldn't do it. But well, I, you're they, in recovery. No, but even when I was drinking, I'm not. Maybe I, it's different than giving a kid a beer at a party who's never had a drink before, or pouring a. You know, when you're at a, you know, you're a little kid and you, you, someone says you want to try a beer, take a sip, whatever. That's different than like uh, you know you're driving around and my friend Dave's fucking seventy two Firebird and you're just loading us up with booze so we could drive around and drink all night. Right. 
giving but, us a loaded gun and saying, good luck yeah. operating this And there thing. were loaded guns around because I grew up in New Mexico. What, plenty of guns around. Were there lots of Jews around in New Mexico? There was a community. You know, they, those places had a community. You know, you feel like you knew them all. But, you know, probably at the time that I was there, there weren't that many. But, yeah, there's a, you know, I, yeah, there's definitely a presence it's that, you know, there were presents like, you know, Houston in Texas, El Paso, because, you know, you did, uh, you know, uh, USY. So you met all these people. Pockets of Judaica, if you will. Sure. Yeah, but they were around. But but uh, get, getting back to the the actual booze part where, you know, so I was this kid who, you know, who like they would go to parties and I'd get sick. And, you know, I remember like I threw up in my friend's Chris's car and he wouldn't clean it up and it was embarrassing you know, like, because he wanted me to clean it up, so he drove around with, like, it was ridiculous. But there was a time where one uh, they threw me out on lawns next to parties they were going to because they didn't want to drive me home, so I'd be passed out. Apparently, there was some party where someone ran in and said, there's some guy dead on the lawn next door, oh, yeah, and it was yeah. just me. And I just, uh, I was too sensitive for it all, but I was trying to, to be cool. I did it because I couldn't handle the neuroses. Like I had, I was thinking just too much about yeah. every which way, and I my body couldn't handle alcohol, so like it was when I started smoking weed that uh, I was like, oh my god, this really deals with me caring. I needed a way not to care because I cared way too much. I did too, but I didn't. I didn't see that. I didn't really see it as medication. I felt like it was something you know I needed to do, and I could never get a handle on it. And the weed back when I was a kid was no good. You know, it was very hard to find good weed. And it was, you know, I remember the first time I got really stoned was across the street in uh, my, this neighbor of mine, John's, like, had a tree house. So we smoked. Everything had a name. How was, old were you? I was probably 14 or, you know, 15 when I really smoked it, you, you, you know, and I was growing it. I had seeds and I had plants out in front of the house, you know, that, but it, I didn't know how to grow it. But I, I had these huge plants and my parents got a kick out of it, but they didn't butter anything. I didn't know about anything you know there was it was the wrong side it didn't have the side you had the male the you had the yeah. male plants but so i go smoke it with john in his tree house and i got really stoned and all these we had different names of like uh I, I can't remember like you know it was back when high times had centerfolds yeah that, i'm but, sure they still do though but, but everything had seeds so there was none of these sensomia buds it sure it's like you know tie stick and this and that hash pictures and Whatever, but I got stoned and I went home and my mother was there and uh, you know I walk in and she goes, "Are you stoned?" And I go, "I am. I'm sorry." She goes, "Well, why don't you go into your room and play guitar? They say you play better like that." And wow. So you've yeah. been playing guitar forever, then? Yeah, yeah. Since I was like, uh, yeah, for forever. My, yeah, there was a yeah. I always had guitar lessons. Yeah. I don't want to jump into music yet because I, I want to know when when did drugs be? I mean, it sounds like alcohol was an issue as soon as you started drinking because you were just drinking huge volumes and getting fucked up out of your mind, getting abandoned on lawns and stuff. Yeah. When did and you were smoking pot? A little bit. I didn't love it. You didn't love pot. So what was the first drug that really spoke to you? Well, I, I'm trying to remember. Like I, I'm trying to remember exactly when cocaine came in. But you, you know, and, and Speed. There was, you know, there were Yellow Jackets or Yellow Jackets and Black Beauties. What are you, Yellow Jackets with Speed? Yeah, and Black Beauties were like downers. No Speed. Speed. Okay. But we even you, know, you never knew if they were real or not, but they would be around a bit, and you'd end up, you know, taking them. I remember like get, we rented a hotel room, me and Chris and Dave and. We were doing drugs, and they had chicks, and I couldn't get a chick, and I got mad, and you know, I was like, kind of lost my shit, and I was all jacked up on speed. And- right. 
And and so ha- all this, you know, you grew up kind of classic suburban alcohol, pills, weed. Yeah. What got you to uh, to comedy? And why didn't you try music? Like, why didn't you play in a band? I, I was not disciplined enough, and you, you know, I kind of I've. I have a, a certain type of personality where if I can do something pretty good or that, enough to n- make me know that I could be really good, it's usually enough to be pretty good. Okay, I understand what that is. <laughs> I get it. And you didn't feel like that with music. Well, no, I played with some guys. You know, We tried to put a band together, but I didn't have the discipline. I wasn't a nerd. I did not like listening, trying to figure out exactly how to play songs or leads or really kind of lock in. It was, it was, I didn't completely nerd out. I liked playing guitar. I liked having an electric guitar. I liked um, having amps, and I could play okay, but not, you know, not great. And uh, but I, it, I just didn't focus on it in the way that would have made. We used to follow. We used to go see bands. There were guys I liked it. Next to the Posh Bagel was a place called the Guitar Shop, and there were all these guitar players there. And they used to call me Bagel Boy, and I used to go over there and hang out. I had I got a really nice guitar when I was younger. The first guitar I got was a Telecaster because of Keith. I had a, a Les Paul Deluxe Copycat was the first electric guitar I got. It was probably a hundred dollar guitar with the gold top. But then my the first real guitar I got was a heavy. Fender Telecaster, but I never, I was never a great player, and I still don't think I'm a great player. But the fact is, I bought the equipment. I remember buying a body, an Explorer body from uh, Schechter, was a company that made necks and bodies. Sure. So I bought the Explorer body. I took the neck off of my Telecaster. I put it on the Explorer body. I had the guys at the guitar shop paint the, 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 the body and get all the hardware, DiMarzio pickups. But there was just stuff I saw in Guitar Player Magazine. I was in no, you know, I could make, make my way through Johnny B. Good. I mean, the fucking, when, when this guy Adolph, when I was in stage band in 10th grade, showed me how to play the Chuck Berry opening riff, uh-huh. it changed my life. Uh-huh. But I never learned to read music, so that I got kicked out of stage band. We, were just, we would get high at lunch, and that was when I was smoking a little more weed, and I told the guy I would learn how to play music. He wanted me to play bass in the stage band. I thought I could just disappear back there. Oh, it was a nightmare. I got yeah, I got kicked out of stage band. But I did learn how to play the Chuck Berry opening. I can almost play it right. But I, I you know, I have this belief. Yeah. And and I think you probably have the same belief, but maybe not. Some people are just fucking intrinsically capable of doing stuff that other people aren't capable of doing. Maybe. Like that's, you Oh yeah, that's certainly true. It's yeah. like I mean like you can tell a story. You can captivate an audience, but you can't pick up. I mean, I think you play guitar pretty great, but like, I, well, I worked hard at it. That's the thing. It's about working hard. Like you know, I I don't know that I am naturally gifted at guitar, but I I have a feel now. And it, it, over the years, I mean, I'm 55 and I kept playing because we played with I played with guys, and we had a band, but we knew four songs, you know, and we couldn't play out. We couldn't make a living at it, but we played a couple parties. There's a pretty funny drug story about that where. We we kind of could hammer our way through like uh, sweet emotion, uh, tush, uh, you know maybe like oh young blood or 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 uh, another bad company song, but we never we couldn't get paid. But I remember we were asked to play at this party, and our bass player Lee he had something else to do, and we got this guy Monty, who my friend Dave knew was his bass player. This guy was kind of out there. And we just like we go to this party where we'd set up in someone's basement and you know someone's parents were out of town. And Monty, who none of us really knew except Dave, had to, we didn't know, but he had taken acid. And we, you know, we play our dumb three songs and we, we all go to try to meet girls or make out in a corner with girls somewhere. And all of a sudden this rumble starts happening. Like 
this sound is happening, and Monty is on stage tripping balls, and he's got all kinds of pedals and delays hooked up to his bass, and he just shuts the party down with this insane experimental acid-driven bass fucking thing, and everybody's like, what the fuck is happening? And uh, and it was uh, it was pretty astounding, you know. But it was scary too. <laughs> These are like coming of age stories, though, because you sure. feel like you're touching the Netherland there. Something, you know, I mean, something's a, happening. Monty was, a, was operating at a different level, that's for sure. Now, when you got into comedy, mm-hmm. that's when coke really set in. No, no, I did coke in, in a bit in, in high school, but you know, coke was expensive, so yeah, hanging around people who had coke. But once I got into college. Sophomore year, you know, freshman year, I went to sort of a, a, a like, a, a not a great school because I didn't want to go to college and I was kind of fucking off in high school. But senior year, I freaked out and decided I needed to get out of Albuquerque. So I, I did real well. And I, you know, I got into an okay college, you know, like, and my parents were, you, know, you they, went to Boston University. Yeah, but my first year, I went to a place called Curry College. My parents had bread. So, like, you know, that I was fortunate. So they could pay for college. So mm-hmm. I went to this small liberal arts college that kind of was like, you know, allowed you know, kind of middle class fuck ups to get in. But they also had apparently a very good dyslexia program. But I went there and, uh, you know, mostly beer, pot. But there was Coke there, too. There was a guy named his nickname was Sniff. So, you know, it was a round. It's an apropos nickname. Right. It was around, and then, you know, when I transferred over to BU, it was around. But, you know, again, it's expensive, and you've got to figure out, you've got to get a job to get coke or you got no guys to get coke but there was coke around there i had a coke a roommate whose brother dealt the coke at college i mean it was coke so i was doing that you know before i you know by the time i got out of college i had a pretty good uh you know i i did coke but you know this is pre-dope there wasn't you know dope wasn't a thing dude you know this is a thing about now that's different it really doped and really. Well, when, what are we talking about? You said you graduated high school in eighty one. Yeah. So you graduated college in like eighty five, eighty six. Yeah, I was there for five years. So eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. I mean, people were doing heroin, but they were doing heroin like down there. No, no, they were shooting you fucking know, on Avenue know, D, shooting white dope. Exactly. But, but there was like the 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 white dope. You know, by the when I got here in eighty nine. Yeah. After I'd already hit the wall with coke and I'd cleaned up once. The, the transition, what I remember is that, you know, the dope became very good and then it became snortable for, for you know, the white, white middle class kids. Right. And that was in the late 80s because it was happening when I was here. But there was none of that black dope around. There was none of that tar dope Not around. Not in Los Angeles, though? That's I because, wasn't in Los Angeles. But right. even then, you know, I don't, I remember, I remember hearing about tar when I went to rehab, you know, after, you know, I hit the wall in 88, um, in uh, yeah, I was in rehab in '88 because I I'd, uh, cocaine'd myself uh, and sleep deprived myself into a psychotic state. So I, when I left, you know, LA in '87 after being at the comedy store for almost a year, you know, I was hearing voices in my head. I saw you know, a, a sort of mystical conspiracies. You know, I was like way out of my mind. And I went back to Albuquerque and I dried out a bit and I checked in for a 30 day rehab. Was that the one? Was that the no. time? No. Well, it was the time, but like, you know, I've got 19 years sober. That was no, no, 80, no. 88. But like, when was, when was it? Because I know, like, I could keep you here forever, and you're yeah. not going to let me keep you here forever. I have a bunch of stuff that I, I need to know about. All right, go ahead. When, how did, what made you get clean? Like, why the did you want to? first time? Get, uh, yeah, break it down. 
Give me, well, a, what are you, we're looking at the watch. How are we feeling? How are you feeling? No, no, I'm fine. It's just like, you know, I'm gonna, I got to pack and shit to get a car at noon, but we're fine. I, I'll give you uh, the time. Well, what got me the first, well, I was terrified. You know, I was hanging out with like a very dark crew. Uh, you know, I was hanging out with uh, Kennison and, and, you know, whatever that baggage that brought to it because I was living in the house behind the comedy store that Mitzi Shore owned and would rent to comics. I was working the door at the store. You know, I was driving the fucking Jeep during the day, you know, uh, running errands. Uh, I was a non-paid regular, which means we could work in the belly room. But I lived at the comedy store. And at that time, you know, Kennison was sort of the reigning terror of the place. And he was sort of a a dark dude, a satanic, you know, uh, know, uh, I, I mean, and I'm not using that word in uh, as an adjective, I mean, he was a, a fallen preacher. So, like, you know, he had a, a definitely a, a, a portal to real kind of intellectual, metaphysical darkness. Serious and, darkness. And, you know, and we were doing a lot of drugs. They used to come up to that house with the fucking freaks, and, you know, I would go buy liquor, and we'd be up there for two or three days. So over And you were, like, a kid, and he 21, was, like... 21, 22. He was, like, 15 years older than you or something. I don't know how old he was. Good question. He looked much older than he was, I think. Yeah, he was definitely older. But, you know, you'd sit there and, you know, do the coke thing for hours. People would come and go, and, you know, there were, you know, just days on end, really. And But I was living a life that was so off the grid in the way that you do when you're you know a comic or living in hollywood you know like you know, like animals you know you don't have to function as an adult you know you, i bought it like i the fact that i had a futon that, that wasn't on the floor and had some sort of shitty frame was you know i was you were know, living it up yeah whatever so but ultimately what happened was i lost my mind you know my parents were concerned they had lost touch with me i was not you know eating you know, yeah i was just there was just it was just coke and you know, drugs all the time, you know, and I never had a a connection for downers. So I never was able to sort of get the sleep necessary. Like, you know, I think those guys were either doing, some of them were either doing dope or they had uh, mandrake connections or whatever, but I never seemed to be in that loop. I was in the Coke loop, but no one was giving me the 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 volumes. Yeah. See, I couldn't take an upper without a downer. Like I literally, like I'm so up in my body yeah. that i i just crave downers well like, I, right well I, I think i had a riddling effect like i think that the 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 coke gave me you know kind of leveled me off it was intense but it sort of i don't know did something else to my brain but because i didn't have a downer hookup and it wasn't really my bag and i you know i was afraid of uh, heroin but it wasn't really around um you know i lost my mind so I, I ran I ran away from Hollywood in, in, as if I were being chased by things that only I understood. And I got back to Albuquerque and I told my parents what was up. And, you know, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I spent the summer just sort of like managing. And then I just checked into inpatient, you know, and I, I was there for a month. But I was, you know, I had to wear certain rings to protect me. I, I was really out there. Yeah, I had, right. I had to have a skull on my shirt. Right. Yeah, yeah. Was that a cocaine? Uh, psychosis. Psychosis. Yeah. yeah. So how long, and then you you got out of that, you know? Well, I sobered up. I didn't really understand meetings or the program. It was very cryptic, and I didn't understand the steps or the traditions. I go to meetings. It didn't resonate. I didn't, I, I couldn't uh, integrate the program at all. So I got sober. I moved to New York or moved to Boston to start over again uh, doing comedy, and I started doing open mics. And and I stayed, you know, I white-knuckled for about a year, year and a half, probably a year and a half, 12 months, uh, 14 months maybe. And, and then it just started to sort of ease back in because you could drink for free at the club. And, you know, I, I came in second in a contest in 1988, and that's when I started working professionally, doing road gigs and driving around. But I didn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't immediately get to psychosis again. It just sort of, you know, built up, it built up, and then... Um, 
the fuck happened? Uh, I don't know. I read it. It was in your book, but I don't remember because I don't remember anything. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it just eventually, you know, I I started like I was um, 88. You know, I just started drinking again. And then I remember, you know, I had, you know, when I started doing comedy, I had a dealer guy. I started doing blow again. Here, right? in, In Boston before I got here. You, you know, I had a guy who used to primarily deal to musicians. So you'd go to his house. He had a very nice apartment, a lot of equipment around it because these poor guys would, you know. Give, of, yeah, trade. Right. I remember one time I, I was uh, hanging out with this guy, Frankie, uh, who was dead now. And I went to score like a, a, like a gram of blow and I ended up buying an amp. Right. And and like, can st- I get that? I got to take a yeah, gram yeah. and give me the Fender uh, exactly. Reverb Deluxe. Right. I get <laughs> So was I it a Fender Reverb Deluxe? It was. A, I think it was. A, I, no, I think it was a Marshall Solid State, okay. you know, single piece. But uh, but like then I go back to Frankie's SRO and I you know I want to do some blow and he's like I want to do some too and then I remember he he said do you mind if I shoot mine and I'm like all right so I go in I watch him fucking you know slam this fucking blow and it was it was one of these weird moments he used to tell the story on stage because you know he, he he you know he got his rig and he did his business you know and he shot up and right when he he hit, you know, the the plunger, you know, he's like, <clears throat> and I'm like, what's up? He's like, there's fucking baking soda in this. And like, I'm like, that's amazing. You can taste it through your veins. Yeah. Like, I thought it was genius. Like, you know, that's a, an interesting sensitivity. Well, that's part of it. It's weird. Yeah. You can ta- you can taste it in your, through your blood. You, yeah. Did you ever shoot anything? No. Yeah, it was like, that was. That was the line that I was afraid to cross. Well, good for you. Yeah. I mean, like. It was. It's a. It's an experience. Yeah. But the tasting through your veins is a very like weird sort of daredevil thing. Yeah. Like you're like getting like oh I taste. It's like it's funny because like foodie junkies are like oh, I taste nodes of baking yeah, yeah. soda and a little bit of fruity blah 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 yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It can kerosene. be exactly. Yeah, I taste a little kerosene, a little cyanide in yeah, the yeah, back yeah. coming up. Yeah. Cold cocoa. Well, I mean, when I was in rehab, I learned a lot about guys who had that relationship with the needle and i knew guys that did like you know guys who just got to the point where they would shoot anything because they like shooting right aspirin you know whatever the fuck they get when we started doing the show um my partner would uh somebody people would write in and say you guys should do a video where you just shoot water like as like a funny video and it's like it's not going to be funny it's going to be terribly traumatic to be shooting water and my partner chris went you know reddit you know what reddit is yeah he went on the opioid site in reddit and it's just people shooting dope on in videos and talking about dope and he found it to be incredibly triggering and crazy no so it's well he and it's like i don't think that that's what did him in but that was like a little bit of the beginning you know for him but um, it's a tough, like I, you know, I've known over the years, you know, many junkies, and it's uh, you know because of recovery and because of guys I knew, and it, it's just like I know also because I didn't build that relationship, but the relationship with that with the needle is hard to hard to kick. Yeah, I I, I got to kick it because uh, of my family, you know, my, yeah. my children, uh, yeah. like my it was like not Jewish guilt, but it was Jewish aspirations. Like, I didn't want to be a junkie father. Like, it was just too much. Well, that was that line, you know, you crossed the line. You know, when you get into the sort of, you know, wild zone of uh, where you, you don't, you no longer have control of your life and it's completely unmanageable, right? That you, you know, you, like that zone I was talking about, the line is that, you know, you, you are in a desperate, sort of addictive, uh, uh, completely unmanageable and tragic state where all you're doing is servicing your addiction, that to sort of have any sort of, uh, you know, moment of clarity, 
whatever it takes, you know, if if somehow or another your brain kicks into place and you can wrangle the 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 wherewithal to to sort of accept your responsibilities as a human it's a, it's a great thing you know it's Hold amazing it. to get out of it and it's a, and it's like, a miracle yeah. it, it's a miracle for me and uh, it's also a miracle to be sitting here with you for me yeah you have um one of the biggest podcasts in the history of podcasting why did you call it wtf let me just before we switch gears into professionalism like i did try heroin a few times and there was some sort oh, of here stuff. we go there, there lay it on me well, well, no. the The thing was, like, you know, the last time I got sober, like, it was not my bag when I was younger because I liked to go fast, you know. Uh huh. And I liked what that did to my brain. But like when I was living down there on the Lower East Side, where I was were you living? Second between A and B, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty nine ish. Yeah. And it was just a fucking dope supermarket, uh-huh. right? So there were, like, my, where I rented, I sub, or I, I didn't sub what I rented this apartment right there, and I don't know how you probably don't go far that that far back to that neighborhood, but there used to be a, there was a doorway next to my house, like literally right next to my house. There was this weird garage where they seemed to be doing something with recycling. There was a lot of intense, frightening Latino dudes around. Uh huh. I work with all of them. Yeah, yeah. And they had point guys at the end of the block, uh-huh. right? But it was like, you know, that was what was going on, you know, next door to me. And I was there sober, fairly newly sober. And I used to see these junkies every day, the same guys, you know, scrambling down the street. There were syringes all over the ground. It was back when everything had names, like Tango and Cash. and It still like, does, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was using it, yeah. everything had a name. And, uh, you know, I just see these junkies line up 20 deep to get fucking dope in that doorway. And there, there was some comedy to it because... You know, it looked like they were waiting to go to a movie, but it, you know they desperately needed to see that movie. But uh, yeah, they're also like, "Hey, Joe, how you doing?" Oh, yeah, they, oh, they, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you can do the methadone voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but 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 it was funny. The the funny part is like if they get the whistle from down the street to see like twenty junkies, you know, kind of scramble as if nothing's going on is hilarious. They're like leaning on the mailbox. Yeah, yeah. The dude I, the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the nodding on the cell phone. That that's the funny one. Like I saw a woman recently who was clearly not talking on the phone, but that was her big. That was her fake, right? She was on the phone, but like not talking and almost uh, making. I used to do a joke called the, you know, uh, about junkie tipping, like uh, instead of cow tipping. Yes. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so like it, the weird thing was, is I thought it was tragic and horrible and sad, you know, when I first got there because I was sober and righteous. But somehow or another, within a year, that turned to like, wow, I wonder what's going on in that doorway. Like, I mean, if they're willing sure. to. Yeah, but it takes a certain type of person to commit to that well, shit. Well, like right? a coke addict who's a comedian, who's an alcoholic, who's like wants But I to- just wanted to try it, and I knew that it was good, and I knew it was snortables, and I wanted to go and have the experience of going to the doorway. So I go in, and I'm like, you know, give me you know, two bags. Yeah, I give the guy 20 bucks. It goes up in a basket. You know, so it was like real Sid and Nancy style. Yeah, you know, it comes down. You know, they give me the, the, the two bindles. I go back next door. I put the lines out. I didn't know anything about anything, so I, I took one ta- dime bag and I put it out and I snorted like half of it maybe, and immediately my face got itchy. I started sweating and I just projectile vomited all over yeah. everything. And then I slept for eleven hours. And when I woke up, I'm like, you know, I think there's a difference between me and someone else because when I woke up, I'm like, what the fuck was that? But someone else would wake up and be like, I'm going to get the hang of this. I just got to figure out. Well, how I to- was the someone else, right? I, I like I had the exact same experience. The first time I had the exact same experience. I woke up with this chick who was not that attractive. Yeah, I was throwing up the whole night. I woke up with her. I was like, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. You yeah, know? I was like, I did it once. I was yeah. a stoner. I was like, yeah. I don't need to do this again. And it was years and years later. Yeah, that uh that I was living in Chelsea and I had all these friends around 
and and there were delivery services and this and all of the kids from my art school came over to yeah. buy coke and I was like well what are you gonna give me for all of this coke yeah and he throws two bags of heroin and uh, you know for free because yeah. I had sold all this coke for him he's like right. here's here's fifteen years of slavery yeah. for making me this money oh wow and uh, so I snorted it with my friend it was a Sunday night I threw up the whole night yeah I put on the Simpsons yeah. I passed out during the Simpsons yeah. But in the morning, when I woke up, I was still high. And I felt that residual high in the morning mm. that was good. It was like the do-do-do-do oh, yeah, 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 yeah. feeling. And I was like, holy shit. And I also was working in TV at the time. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. I was working in TV at the time, and I had all this new pressure. Uh-huh. And I felt this, I don't give a shit. And I fe- and then like I got a show, and I decided when I had a show, I was Miles Davis now. I was John Lennon. I could do what I wanted. I could handle it. And uh, and really, I was just so scared that I needed something to take away the fear and make me feel confident. You know, you didn't. And when to you when you did heroin, you were like, I feel sick. That well, but it took me a while to get it. You, you know, like the thing was is like I understood it, but it was not my bag. But I kept trying. I mean, there was a period of a week or so there, and I had a great coke dealer down in Alphabet City who had you know he like he ran almost like a salon. It was I, he, he's sort of notorious. I won't give his real name, but people who who, who knew them back then because it was you'd see people there. His name was Hammerhead. Okay, and. Uh, but I would. I remember one time, like, because you know, I was involved, like, it, it, you know, I was like, I was married or almost married, and I didn't want my wife to know that I was back on the shit. And the Luna Lounge show right down here across the street was uh-huh. Monday night, so I would do. I, that's when I would start. So I would go down there thinking every time that like I'd get my coke use in early. So I'd go over to Hammerheads sometimes when the sun was still out. And like, man, 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 call him up. Come on, man, come on. You know. And I remember one time. <laughs> I, you know, because he, you could hang out there, and he put out shit. You know, it was stepped on, right? But, but you know, that you was him entertaining. In yeah, the exactly. Yeah, okay. It was yeah. great. I loved hanging out there, and uh, but I think he also had a back door to heroin too. But I, I didn't know it. But I remember one time I go over there, and it's light out, and he hadn't even closed the blinds yet. And this little Colombian dude comes over, like a little old man with this wad of tin foil, and you know, and and he delivers it to Hammerhead. This is at the beginning of the engine, and you know. And he opens it up, and there's this fucking, you know, the real shit in there, right? And I'm like, let's do some of that. So, we, you know, we did, you know, like a couple, I did two lines of like, you know, pure fucking, pretty pure Coke. And the feeling was so perfect. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I had never It's way it different, right? Right. And I go like, gee, why don't you, why, why don't Just you sell me this? Yeah, why don't you sell that? And he goes, because people would never leave me alone. And I just watched him dump that rock into a bag of garbage, right? You know, and cut it with whatever the fuck he cut it with. Right. I was like, "That's what it's really like." But oh, but the heroin. So, so I kept trying it. Like I bought bags, and you know, and then I started trying to smoke the white shit, and it was okay. I'd mix it with pot, and I, I but there, I the remember, heroin you'd mix with, yeah, pot. waste. Right. I know there's guys out there right now going, "You fucking idiot," yeah. but. uh but what ultimately happened was... I like kept, in joints, you'd smoke heroin joints. Well, I put in a little one here that I had, a prototype, okay. yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, oh, the old prototype, yeah. the gold metal prototype. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I never used the stash tin. I liked one-hitters a lot. I, I eventually let, you know, landed on a wooden one that I, I still have. The one-hitter was a great invention, especially for New York City. I also like the pipe, yeah, because you duck into a foam. But the prototype take- was a very specific thing. Yeah. And nobody talks about the prototype. It had some self-cleaning piece to it, right? It self-cleaning like- piece. It had a stash piece to it. It had, it had a, a permanent screen. And the, the cleaning piece, you could poke the holes in the screen. had a resin box at the bottom where you right. could get resin. It's just in case when you run out, if you need to smoke your resin. Yeah, I had that. I had one of those. But 
But what happened was, I remember one night I did heroin again because, I, like, I guess I'm lying because after I threw up, I did try. I keep trying. Right. Because, I, you know. You wanted I'm, to make it work for you. I did. Because I remember one time I did some, but I didn't want to, like, stay in the house. So, like, I went to the comedy cellar. And, it, like, it hadn't come on yet. And, like, I was sitting in the comedy cellar. It was, like, a weeknight. And, like, I started nodding. I, could, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop the nod. Mm-hmm. And, like, people are like, you're all right? I'm like, yeah, I just got a flu or something. And I just remember I was just fighting the nod. I wouldn't surrender to it. And I actually, like, it must have been the late 80s, yeah, because I remember, like, Louis and fucking Mattel needed a ride uptown. And I had a car then, this VW Golf. And I drove them, you know, on the on fucking heroin. nod. And did they find that out? Did no. You never but, told them? No. And, like, and I, I just, like, I couldn't, like, I remember driving, like, this is fucked, man. Like, my head kept going down, like, all the way uptown, dude. That's a classic story. <laughs> I love that story. That's so funny. So that to this day, if you mentioned to them that you drove them high on heroin, they, would, they wouldn't know it. No, no, no. I don't think I, I, don't think I told anyone that. But, but then I kind of, like, that was right before I freaked out, like, and I left town. I left, I left um, I'd broken up with a girlfriend who later became my first wife, she moved to San Francisco. And I was starting to, like, you know, try to do that heroin thing. And then I was like, fuck this. I had that freak out. And I'm like, I got to get out. I got to clean up. Because you were smelling the heroin kind of chasing you a little bit. Yeah. And then, like, I go, like, I just decided on an impulse. I'm going to San Francisco. Like, because I wasn't getting on stage that much. And I was, you know, back on drugs. And, um, And then, like, I just, like, I left. I did the same thing I did in L.A. I just sold everything. I gave my bed to the guy across the hall who was sleeping on the floor. And uh, I just got in my car and I drove 22 hours. But I remember I had a couple of the, I had a couple of those dope bindles and I was still smoking it in the pipe with the pot. And I drove across country in like two or three days and just landed on her doorstep. And I was like, I need help. And, you know, I, I'm fucking here. Can I live with you? And we had broken up and, you know, she was seeing somebody and, you know, it was a fucking kind of a disaster. But... But uh, we got back together. I moved to San Francisco, and I got clean again for a year or so. Did you get sick? No, no, I didn't get strung out at all. It was really, we're talking probably like three or four times. So, you know, it was like, but I coveted it. You know, I liked having those little wax paper bindles. Sure. But, uh, but no, they pack a punch. It's like a, it's like a mystical thing. It's like. It's a mystical, like crazy. I mean, it's a sedative. It's it's an opioid. It's a painkiller. But like. To when it clicks into the to the addict, it becomes like peace. You know, it's like and I never see. I never quite got there. I never got total euphoria in the way that I think guys who shoot dope. You know, and you when you shoot it, I think you get that thing, that bang. When you figure out how to do that, nah, I, I I I I felt it from snorting. I mean, I wound up shooting dope, but I I started snorting dope and I felt it. I remember I was I was so obsessed with the Beatles and John Lennon. That he, when he got on dope, yeah. he would talk about how, like, when he was recording, he'd have uh, butterflies in his stomach all the time. Or when he played, he'd have oh, butterflies. And then, and then when he did dope, he, he felt total peace. Like, he, and the quote was, it's such a stupid quote, but he said he had two golden eagles inside of him instead yeah. of the butterflies. And I was like, I want to feel that kind of thing. Well, I remember that. I actually, weird, I remember, like... Oh, yeah, man. Like, I, I remember, like, playing guitar on the last... On 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 the uh, uh, CK had done a movie. I think it was called. I think it was Caesar Salad was the movie. It's, it was a feature, first feature length, and I was in it. You know, like he like maybe do some ridiculous thing that didn't make the cut, but then he let me play in the studio for the for the final credits music. And I remember I was a, a little dopey, 
And and I like I was like I'm doing it. I'm finally playing guitar. Dope. Right, right. And I felt like it was really, I like I really did it, man. Like, you're I, out, I could yeah. understand the appeal because you you're afforded a certain amount of space when you do that. Like I, 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 I you know, I didn't live the life, but having had that moment where like that that place that you get to when you're on dope, there's a free zone there. There's no thought anymore. Yeah, that you can. Yeah, you're very connected. But uh, dope didn't come back until much later. But like the, when I finally got sober for real for the last time, one of the last times I used, like I didn't, I didn't lock in with dope. And when I got to San Francisco, I didn't, like I, you know, I, I think I tried to buy it once just so I could smoke it. But it, it I got burnt on the balloon deal. But um, but it, it didn't, it didn't lock in. But it, you know, coke came and went, and speed came and went here and there. Back, you know, there was some, you know. You know, but it, it was not. It, it never got to a daily thing other than weed, and and maybe some booze. But I remember towards the end when I really fucking hit the wall. I, you know, I was back here. Was it? And what was your career like when when that was happening? Like, because you were like one of these big budding comedians at that time. Well, I was always around. I got TV. You know, who were your time. peeps? It was like Sarah Silverman and. Well, I knew her when I when she was and a Louis C.K. and Jay was Jay Leno one of your contemporaries no, no, at the he's time. He's a generation older than me. When I came back to New York, so in Jerry the 90s, and Jay and those guys are a generation older. older. And Chris Rock is your generation, kind of, but he was already big. You know, the guys I was running around the clubs with would you know Jeff Ross, Todd Barry, Sarah, David uh, Tell, Tell, you know C.K. You know, um, Artie. <laughs> no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't, and he wasn't doing stand-up that I can recall. What about uh, Bob Saget? No, he's older. Yeah, keep going. I, I wish I wish I had the balls or I, or the ability to tell a joke. Like I don't tell jokes. I'll tell you a good Jewish joke at the end. All right. But um, oh, so anyway, so one of the last times I used was like you know I had gotten you know I was married. I was unhappy. My career was stalling. I was living in Queens. Like, there was a lot of back and forth here. You know, because I did TV, you know, like, uh, yeah, but I... Short you know, attention span theater was right. then. But, like, I did get chunks here and there. Like, you know, I usually would stay sober for a year and a half, a year, a year and a half. You know, he's going to kind of going to meetings, but never locking in. But in 89, or was it 99, I was on the road. Okay. And... I was doing the Seattle Comedy Festival, and I was using again pretty heavy when I could. But again, I was married to somebody that wouldn't tolerate it. So when I'd go on the road, You'd I'd sneak lean in. Dude. Right, right. But like it, it, that's where it got dangerous because if you're like sitting there counting the days to Until go on you the can road, you, and then you got to get a lot in. So you got to get it all out, in. You're, you're hanging out with freaks. You're doing. You're fucking pushing it. You're living your second life. Right. And the life you want to live. This other life is yeah. like the daydream. Right. So then I'm like in Seattle. I didn't have any shit with me. I didn't bring any shit because I thought maybe I'd, I'd play it straight. And fucking Mitch was there before he died. Hedberg. Yeah. And I, you know, I can out him. I, I mean, you know, it's like everybody knows the score with Rich, but and with Mitch, but I didn't know anything. But we were co-headlining at this Seattle Comedy Festival, and I didn't bring any shit with me. And I hook up with Mitch. He's like, "Oh, I got shit." He had shit, right? Like you know, like that. He had uh, some eight balls, and then you know, and he also had some tar, right? And I didn't know what they were up to, but they were, you know, doing their thing. But I was in their room and, you know, we're doing, you know, we're doing blow. And then, like, you know, he gives me some tar. So I'm foiling that shit. So I'm smoking that. And they're going in the bathroom doing whatever they're doing. But we're just all in there listening to My Bloody Valentine. Right, right, you know, right. Just nodding. nodding out. Yeah. In Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1999. Yeah, yeah. 90, yeah, it must be yeah, early 99. 
and I, you know, we did that. Heroin the, chic is is full on. I guess I didn't know. I, I'm about just it. saying that, yeah, like maybe. The, the dope is running everywhere. But he had like, but he was traveling with you know, there were people you know, like the guys that that were really needed it. They had guys everywhere that would get it, or they'd have a guy that would you know service that. But like, I remember like I did that for three days. I did a mediocre show, and I was checking out of the hotel, and I was waiting online, and I started to sweat, and I went outside, and I threw up in a planter. And then, like, it was, and then, like, there was one other time when I went to Chicago uh, for a comedy festival, me and this kid, Dave, who's sober now, you know, we ended up getting eight balls and we just uh, in the room going nuts, you know, for three days. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, I felt like I was going to die, you know, and I was checking out of that hotel and Dave's brother was the guy uh, who was, uh, worked at the hotel and also hooked us up with the, with the connect for the eight balls. But like I, he said, after the fact, after I got sober, he said, I remember that day you were checking out and your luggage was sweating. <laughs> That's good. But then I, I locked in, you know, I locked in. I, I, you know, I met somebody in comedy who, you know, and became my second wife and she got me sober. And, and uh, you know, she won't talk to me anymore, but that's fine. Not, and, but she got me sober. Will she really not talk to you? No, she no, yeah, they, yeah. I don't, we, you know, it, that's all over and it's all dealt with. But uh, but she did, you know, she did gave you the gift. She gave you an amazing gift. She did. She did. she opened a door, and not only that, just from being a fan of yours, it's so obvious that you get to be yourself, like in all of your Took regalia. A long time. But but you get to do it now. I feel. I mean, like I'm a fucking lackey slave across the street. Yeah. But I get to be myself. Yeah. And that's the biggest gift of recovery. Well, you get to be yourself, like because in early recovery, I was out of my mind, you know, and angry and stuff. But over time, as you know, fortunately, and I'm grateful, and you know, I it, and some of it had to do with persistence and talent. Some of it had to do with cosmic timing. But you know, somehow or another, I managed uh, to find a niche for myself where I could, you know, make a living in, in show business and. And that sort of gave me a little more confidence. You know, the self-esteem outside of esteemable acts or or recovery, but the fact that, like, you know, once I, you know, hit bottom again in sobriety, when that second wife left me, I lost all my money and I started the podcast in my garage that I was thinking about killing myself it's in. It's the same garage? It was. I just moved. But do you still work out of your garage or do you have a an different office? different garage. Okay. Yeah. But, um... You don't but, live in Island Park anymore? You still live no, in No, I Park? just moved. Where do you live? I don't talk about it now. Some some schmancy fancy spot? Not too, no, no, it's not that schmancy fancy, but like, you know, I I just, um, I I try to keep a little bit of, you know, like I just. Dude, dude. Because when it was weird, and no one bothers me, but it was very easy to find my, you know, address. How about when Obama was on and your whole neighborhood gets shut down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, it was okay. You know, my fans are generally good people, but but what I'm saying is that, you know, the, the other sort of, being comfortable with myself because I've always been the kind of comic that talked about himself. And in the podcast, I can talk about myself in a, in a way that isn't necessarily funny. And then, you know, because, you know, I, I, I found some success, you know, I, I'm, I'm, and, and I don't give as much of a fuck about a lot of things that I used to. It's, it, I did land in my own skin. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, why was it called WTF? Because, um, initially when we started it, in order to get out of my divorce and pay off the woman, I'd taken a job at Air America that was, you know, in its third right. sort of uh, uh, whatever. I can't think of the word. Iteration. Iteration. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I was doing a streaming video show there with Sam Cedar. That in no one it was not. It was pre YouTube being that accessible, so no one was really watching it. But I needed. They gave me enough money up front to pay off the 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 ex. 
and stop that hemorrhaging of money. And, and uh, But, you know, they ran out of money and no one watched the show after a year. And we were over there and we have radio studios and people were doing podcasts. So my idea for WTF was that, the, you know, uh, it used to be the great philosophical question was, you know, what is the meaning of life? And now it's, you know, what the fuck? So it was this idea that I thought was an umbrella idea where we could do a bunch of segments sort of around the idea of what the fuck. You right. Know? But it was vague. Right. So the first, like, six or seven episodes, there were many segments. There was some comedy in it. There was a recurring guest. Matthew Weiss was in the room. The interviews were shorter. You know, we were just feeling it out, hijacking the studios over there. And Did then- you always want a talk show? No, it was, you know, when you do comedy, there's you realize that, you know, after a certain point, if you're not going to be a big comic or that doesn't happen for you, that... You know, there's other the, the skill set enables you to do things like you can be a writer, you can be a showrunner, you can be a host of some kind, uh, you can um, you know be an actor or whatever. So hosting was a possibility. I'd done a talk show pilot for Comedy Central uh, that you know, with uh, HBO Downtown Productions, but they went with the Daily Show. <laughs> right. Who did you like? Who are your favorites? Talk show hosts, like who, like when you started having a because you became you basically became one of the biggest talk show hosts in history. You know, what with you, the podcast? Yeah, I guess you don't think so, dude. Your I podcast people, is immensely fucking huge. Yeah, I think that people like whether they can tolerate me or not, or my self centeredness, and you know, at times. But they, I do feel like I have a reputation of being a good interviewer, dude. You're good, fucking. I live for talk shows, um, or I I love the idea of them. When I was a kid, like yeah. my mother would listen to John Gambling on the radio, yeah. and I would be like, what a relaxing job. Or like I liked Regis, like, yeah. I just because he's so friendly and sweet. No, I, just, I, I I understood the skill. It was not really my. I didn't never saw myself becoming what I am, but it's where I evolved the skill of conversation by asking, you know, by by settling resentments and by asking people how they fucking deal with life. Right. You know, it sort of sort of evolved and and like, but I always had a natural interest in other people, especially charismatic people. You know, it, because you get a charge out of talking to them. You know. Well, there's a soulful quality to your show, mm. too, and it's like one of the questions I wanted to ask you because after Chris died, I was like trying to figure out how to do my show uh, alone because like the show was funny because it was me and him like laughing at each other yeah. and like talking shit and like friends yeah. do and he was very funny and very smart. And I started to do it by myself for a minute, and I would listen to you, and I tried to listen to Bill Burr. Yeah. But Bill Burr just laughs at all of his own jokes. Yeah. And, like, I can't, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm just not like that. You don't do that. No. You have a certain, like, sad soulfulness yeah. and then a great interview. Yeah. But do you ever feel lonely when you do it by yourself? Well, I think that was a skill. I knew from doing radio that I had a knack for that type of mic. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, I who the hell knows why... Someone talking in a radio format is compelling. I don't know why. I don't know if you can learn it. But there was a period of time where I knew that I had to learn because I did a morning show on on Air America, so I had a crew. And I knew that to really transcend or be good at the medium, I had to learn how to talk by myself uh, into a mic. Right. And it was a very conscious thing. You know, how am I going to learn that? How do you even do that? How do you fill time just sitting there by yourself? Who are you talking to? All do you ever worry about, like, if things are going over or not or whatever? Not not much. I mean, I have a, a, a brilliant producer, uh, you know, who keeps things in check. But but Have you always had that? He's been with me since Air America. I met him, Brendan, when I was, you know, he was 24. I'm on my own out here. I'm in the wilderness. Yeah. Well, okay. Anyway, continue. But, I mean, he's not in the room with me. No. But just, I just, like, he'll feel, you know, he puts the show together. But I do I do remember 
forcing myself to learn how to talk. I guest hosted a couple of shows radio wise, but you know, with radio, you're only dealing with, you know, like uh, 11 minutes before the break, you know, but to, to just sort of find the freedom of mind to do it. So with practice, I learned how to do it. And I, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, what tools you would put in place to do that. I, I tend to just kind of uh, follow through with my thoughts. I don't necessarily think I'm talking to somebody, but I do have a relationship with an audience in a general way, so I know I'm talking to them. But it was just uh, untethering myself from the fear of of talking. Right. I don't know how it happened, but it was practice. It was, again, like you say, some people have a natural skill for things, but other people who work hard can figure out how to do it. You may not be gifted. But you actually have, you like this, the knack that fucking Jimi Hendrix has with the guitar or Keith has with the guitar, you actually have it with this. Mm. You have that knack. Well, I appreciate that. No, I'm not. I'm not I like, never had any real role models. Like, I always liked Letterman and stuff for short form conversation, but people. You know, like if you know people talk about Stern, I didn't grow up with Stern. I don't think I've ever listened to a whole Stern. I song. heard you on Stern though. That was good though. You were great on Stern. He didn't have me back ever. Why not? I don't fucking. Know. I know why. I know why. Huh. Uh, because he felt uh, he. I love Howard. Yeah. Like fucking. As far as I'm concerned, like if Howard had a cult, I would join. You might be in it. Well, I'm not. He does, doesn't he? I don't. I'm not in it, so okay. I don't know. But like, I think that he feels threatened from time to time, and especially like. With this new age of Howard not being Howard and you and Joe Rogan and yeah. all these people kind of nipping at him yeah. in a way. I guess, and yeah, rather I than that. just being like, I want to join up. Own it, yeah. He, he, sh- he shies back. away. Yeah. You know, and also like that shit with Artie on the Howard Stern show, I think it really affected Howard. It changed the show. It changed everything because he decided he wanted to get into this mainstream stuff. Yeah. Like have Gwyneth Paltrow as opposed to the guy who farts songs or whatever. <laughs> but I stopped, I stopped listening to Howard because uh, I live with my kid. Yeah. And there's just too much cursing and yeah. sex, oh, and I don't want her to hear it. Was a, something happened when he was, he was completely uh, able to say however he wanted to say anything. Yeah. I, mean, I think things changed when he got divorced and when he moved to Sirius. When he got divorced, it was epic. But I think like... You know, I think that's that's the other thing that I want to talk about. I know that I'm pushing way out of our time sphere, but like with Howard, fucking, you feel like you're amongst friends. Yeah, you feel like you're with your friends, and yeah. and and he thrived on that. Yeah. I don't think he could do what you do. Yeah, with you, you're in your head. Yeah, you feel your soul. Yeah, and then these interviews. Yeah, like. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, I want like, to connect with people. But it's pretty amazing. No, thanks. Like the Keith, I listened to Keith. Yeah. I'm such a Keith Richards yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. And 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 oh my god, when you said to him, uh, "You're talking about the difference between aftermath and Beggar's Banquet," yeah. and you say, "What was it like when you modernized rock and roll music?" Yeah. And just the way you put it, it was like that. That's the Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, you described the Rolling Stones in a question, and I could hear him realizing that yeah. and it was such a cool thing but the best thing about the keith richards the interview was the cigarette <laughs> the whole fucking i mean it's like what an arc to an interview yeah. he walks in keith smoking cigarettes in npr mark how long had you not smoked cigarettes for decade uh, 10 years the cigarettes in front of you you're holding it and uh and how long did it take you to smoke it well, no, it was just sort of like, you know, I used to smoke those. Yeah, I think he had Marlboro Reds, right? Yes, he and did. I, and I have the, I'm on the nicotine lozenges. I was going to ask you for a lozenge. Oh, I'm on the lozenges again. But, like, I just said, give me one. And I just held it. And he was smoking. And I'm holding this unlit cigarette for what, like, probably a half hour, 35 minutes. You have to listen. I listened this morning, and, but, but I couldn't tell you had smoked it. I thought you were screaming at the producer, but you were screaming at Keith because you had just lit it. Well, no, he threw a lighter at me. Ah. 
Like I'm sitting holding this on, and like some he just and that that's the essence of Keith, right? He threw the lighter at me, and I'm like, if I'm gonna smoke one, this is the time. And He's I like smoke. cocksucker, just light the fucking cigarette. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, the interesting thing about that Keith thing is like how much he really wants to distance himself from his reputation in the sense that when I read that book, Life by Keith yeah. Richards, I mean, it's so intelligent and so brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just so much more than we ever thought he was. And I was sort of like, holy shit, we've misread this guy. The Malaguena and, and the way he cooks and all this Everything, stuff. Yeah, yeah, his, sure. his knowledge of books. He's very, you know, sort he's of. He's a fucking genius, genius. He's a genius, genius, genius. Th- yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, but he's, he's a thoughtful and intelligent intellectual guy he's not some fucking junk he's not the guy that you know he's like he he you know he you know, gave birth to a whole generation of junkies who thought they were guitar players you know but but ultimately when you talk to him you realize like he really puts that in the past he's like you know i haven't done dope in a long time basically you know he's he he's trying to get out from under that reputation because he's got a whole other life and i think that book and the conversation i had like he doesn't want to talk about dope you know i don't think he's done dope in decades but he's sitting with you drinking Nuclear waste. I'm not saying that he doesn't maintain, but it's interesting. Yeah, because he, he. I mean, like I couldn't drink and smoke joints all day, and I assume you couldn't. No, but somehow Keith can. I know dudes that do that. There is a, you know, the the sort of maintenance of ex junkies with alcohol and stuff. Like I think their mind, and I'm not sure they're wrong to a degree. That you know, he also lived long enough to be old. That you know, whatever his habit was, you know, shooting fucking real you know, real strong dope into your muscles because you can afford it, skin popping as opposed to doing through your fucking veins, that, you, you know, that life has its liabilities. And I think there are guys that they're, they're still addicts, they're still alcoholics, but they're not shooting dope. Right, right. It's like marijuana maintenance. Right. But I wonder if, you, if you're like, if you're Keith Richards, okay, and you're drinking nuclear waste to mm. the point of being I, drunk. I think it was actually, uh, he likes... Um, Orange soda and vodka. Okay, whatever it is. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know about drinks or whatever. But like, if it was me, and I got really drunk, I might want to take a pill, mm-hmm. or I'd be like, oh, yeah. I'm really drunk. I wouldn't mind taking a shot. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, and it's amazing that he can not do that. But he's Keith Richards. You know, he wrote Satisfaction while he was sleeping. Right. We don't know his life, and we don't know. Like, you know, I don't know if he chips at other things or whatever. Right. But, you know, but he's like in his seventies. You he know, he can do whatever the fuck he wants. But he's obviously wants to live. Oh yeah, and he loves his family, and uh, and he loves his music. I mean, that was the thing he said. Yeah. He said, um, he said, I love my band more than I love this shit, and I don't want to go to jail. You know, I, yeah. I mean, that that when he got busted in Canada, you know, and uh, and he's in the hotel, and you remember those recordings, like yeah. we did the nearness of you and yeah. all that stuff. Like that's the most beautiful stuff ever. Well, they, the funny thing is, I talked to him about that fucking blues record, and they made it finally. Yeah, like the, like the the the. But those recordings, lonesome. when it's just him in the no, hotel room, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like, oh my god, That's beautiful. I love the, I, I love that solo album. The, uh, um, what was it called? That first solo he did with Locked Away on it, and uh, I don't know. Oh, it's such a good record. I gotta get it, but it's old. But but the but like I asked him about doing straight blues record, and then like a year or so later, I don't think I had anything to do with it. But they put out Blue and Lonesome like last year, and it's fucking great. It is great. It's great. Now here's another question: When you have a guest on, and you know that their early stuff is way better than their later stuff, mm. do you, do you, like you said that to Paul in a weird <laughs> sort of way? He was so funny. He was so quick, McCartney. Because I thought I would get him on that. Because I talked to a lot of these old guys, 
And I said to him, uh, you know, a lot of guys, you know, as they get older, they think they're still doing their best work. And, now, and he says, I was with the, you know, he, I was and in I the said, Beatles. Do you feel that way? He's like, I was in the Beatles. That's a pretty high bar. But he still fucking always needs to one up John. It's like he always does. He always has that story that. where John walks into the bar and they play yesterday. Yeah. Like he, because oh, yeah. I wrote, I, I, I don't feel, I don't think I really felt that, but I'm sure it's there. I went to see Paul mm. um, last year at the yeah. Barclays Center. It was the most amazing show I ever saw. He played for four hours. Yeah. He, did, he did everything. But when he did Strawberry Fields, rather than doing the last verse of Strawberry Fields, he goes into a Give Peace a Chance medley. And it's like, just play the song. Like, give us, do me a favor. Just do one John song. Like, or, or it was A Day in the Life. He yeah. didn't do Strawberry Fields. He did A Day in the yeah. Life. And instead of doing the last verse of A Day in the Life, which is super cathartic and yeah. beautiful, he goes into All We Are Saying Is Give Peace a Chance. Well, that's a John Lennon song. Right. But why not? He packages it as oh. a medley. He does that with George Harrison, too. I love Paul McCartney. I love Paul. Yeah. But I just would, if he played like fucking a weird John song at a Paul show, the world would fucking you know, go he, you berserk. You know he'd do a good job on his crippled inside. From Imagine, he would. The world would go berserk if he played "Cripple Inside." It would be the coolest thing ever. It's like it's almost a Paul song. Yeah, yeah, it would be amazing. And I love Paul, and I yeah. and I loved hearing you talk to him about all this stuff. It was yeah. so cool. Now you've you've interviewed everybody in the world. A lot of people. You interviewed Neil Young. You yeah. interviewed Obama. You interviewed. I mean, like if I mention him, you probably interviewed him. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, who was your favorite? Do you oh, have one? I don't know. You don't have one. You know, it, it's like it's really week to week. My memory's not as good as it used to be, and it's very rare that I don't have a pretty good experience with people. You know, I just interviewed Roger Daltrey, and I'm not even that big a Who guy. You don't like and, the Who that much? No, I like him, but I, I wasn't a Who guy. I'm a it's crazy just, Townsend fan. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, it's not that I don't like him. I've listened to Townsend solos. I've listened to the Who, but I never like locked in. I, you know, I'm the, you know, even with the, the biggest bands that I like, there's still plenty of shit I don't know about them or listen to. I've never, I don't have a full nerd brain but um but yeah I, I i always like i always get something out of all of them and i t- i tend to enjoy them more now than i uh, i used to I, I still get a lot of anxiety and dread before i talk to people but that's just the way i am uh and i'm always sort of relieved that they you know when they turn out to just to be people with stories and you know it's nice that's awesome let's wrap it up buddy well let's wrap it up yeah will you feel you all right i feel great this is the best thank you so much thank you Mazel tov. You say, this is what we do. At the yeah. end of the episode, yeah. Yeah. we say, uh, I would always, I made a joke, because uh, our audience is all junkies, and yeah. we, we weren't even doing a recovery show at first. We were just doing a drug show. And I would say, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Yeah. And, uh, and Chris, because he was, however he was, he would say toodles. So you say, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for But before Chris. I say that. Yes, sir. If you're struggling, there, there's always help. That's if, more important. Yes, please. It's one phone call away. Yes. Always help. There's always uh, help if you want help to talk to another alcoholic or addict to uh, get help. And uh, you just got to look it up in your fucking phone book or get online and go show up to one of those rooms and say, I need help. And you have it for the rest of your life. Now, what do you want to do? I love that. That's a very important message. If you guys are struggling, talk to somebody. Go to a fucking meeting. Uh, and then we just say, stay strong, Dopey Nation. You want me to stay fit? What say, like stay it? strong, Dopey Nation. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And if you don't mind saying toodles for fucking Chris, who we love and we miss, yeah, say toodles. Toodles, Chris. All right. Thanks, Mark. Amazing. Thank you. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. 
Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to